listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Curious if you've ever wondered what it would be like to live in a way where you knew you could not fail. How would you live if you knew you couldn't fail? You ready? You ready for that? That's the teaching. You can go now. Okay. <laughs> this, was, uh, this was brought up <clears throat> uh, in a discussion I was, I was having a couple, of day, uh, a couple of days ago that the, the overriding um, emotional responses we tend to have towards life are somewhere in the spectrum uh, bookended by love and fear. In other words, we tend to, most of our gravitational pull, at least psychologically and spiritually, is towards fear. We're afraid. And that fear is continually being reinforced by the universe, which is going to do this one thing that we can't stand, and that is the universe takes stuff away. It also giveth, but it taketh away. Okay? And it's that whole taketh away thing, sounds like I'm lifting, that really gets in our way. Because, damn it, I worked really hard for that. Don't you take that away from me. Universe. Now I say universe, but the universe shows up as all things. So it might be a person that you're looking at as taking something away from you. It might be a situation that's taking something away from you. Whatever it is, there's this loss continually. And our work, we think, as human beings, is to make sure that we prevent loss, that we keep, or maybe a better verb is that we get. Either we get more stuff or we get more stuff. Stuff materially or stuff intellectually, mentally. And what does this stuff do? We actually use it as barriers against the onslaught of the universe, which not only giveth, but what? It taketh away. Right? Amen. Okay, so what we really want to pay close attention to is this, just, just the notion, just entertain it for a moment or two, that... We recognize how everything is temporary, that the universe gives and it takes away. We recognize that. Everyone in this room can recognize that. If you really take a step back and you go, you know what, I've been able to keep precisely nothing. And you might say, well, I've been able to keep my wits about... Really? <laughs> Maybe mostly. You know? And there may be some of you who, who have been able to keep something for your entire life. Um, but I, I'm going to make a promise, and that is it will get taken away at some point, whatever it is that you've been able to keep. 
every single thing is temporary. Everything is temporary. Okay, one of the fundamental laws of the universe. With that being the case, with everything being temporary, you can begin to look very carefully at the way you behave in relationship to that fundamental truth. The tendency for the human organism, instead of to go along with the universe's temporary offerings and takings away and that whole thing, instead of going along with it, we tend to swim against that stream. We become spiritual salmon, okay? And what happens to spiritual salmon when they get to that ultimate place of giving birth, of, you know, progenating, of, of actually having more baby salmon? What do they do? They die, okay? Now, that's great. The universe gives us salmon, and it takes salmon away. It gives us our lives, it takes them away. The question is, how are you going to deal with that? I know this probably sounds like Braveheart. Every man is born, but not every man dies, but not every man really lives. You know, something dramatic like that. It's the only Mel Gibson reference I will ever give in any Dharma talk. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, this is kind of a cool. This is kind of a cool thing to think about. We tend to fight against this stream. We tend to like really think that we can change the course of this river. If I just hang on tighter, if I just, to stretch the metaphor, swim faster, swim harder, I'll live forever. I'll make it last. At some point, we recognize that this doesn't work. And this gets really, really scary. It's not just the scary like the universe may take stuff away. It's the scary recognition that, oh my God, everything is temporary. Everything will get taken away. What am I? And the case, spiritually at least, is continually made that you are not a salmon swimming upstream. Your equal parts salmon, stream, flow, air, sunshine, rain, roots, rocks, all of it. And if you are indeed all of it, what of that all is temporary. What of that all can be taken away? We then get to this space where we start recognizing we are utterly connected. We are part of all of this and all of this is part of me. Whatever I defined as me previously falls apart. That definition itself begins to fall apart. It was something I built in my own mind. And if I built it in my own mind, it's just a thought that came out of the infinite, and it's going to end up dying back into the infinite. Perhaps it's dying back right now. You start recognizing there is so much more to me than me. And it's at this shift, this break, this snap, sometimes just like a, a twig might break, 
that there's tremendous opportunity for growth. Tremendous opportunity for recognizing something that's deeper, something that's more expansive, something that is instead of being governed and ruled by fear, is actually infinitely supported as love. And it doesn't mean we go through life, you know, prancing around on our tiptoes, flinging magical confetti all over the place. It's not airy-fairy, okay? This is real, fundamentally sound teaching that you can find in each of the traditions. Whichever path up the mountain you choose to take, okay? They all more or less kind of talk about this. And that's our work. I hit hard sometimes on this, on this point. I think if we are here just to feel good, we are in precisely the wrong place. Because our work in this particular sangha, and indeed, you know, I would say uh, uh, the best that I know of, the best teaching teachers and communities that I've ever seen have all centered their work around this space of waking up to what's beyond the limitations of self and what points us into the limitless nature of no self. What takes us past this bound entity that we have all grown quite addicted to. We spend this entire lifetime with self-help, <laughs> many of us at least, with with healing, all of which are great, with how can I be a better person, with tweaks, massages, and adjustments that we make to our psychology and indeed our personality. All of this is fine, okay? But it leads us into this next space if we're willing to take the leap, which is recognizing that all that work that we have done on the self actually gets us ready to jump into a deeper, more expansive, limitless realm where instead of being a salmon that's trying to become a better salmon, we actually are able to let ourselves go. We are able to actually recognize that we are a series of relationships made up of all things. In Zen we say sometimes, all dharmas arise to create the self. All things, in other words, arise to create this thing we call self. And so tonight we're going to kind of lean into this a little bit. We're going to explore that idea of, you know, fear of protecting the self, protecting me and mine in opposition to you and yours. Us versus them, looking at that as best we can with as clear a lens as possible and seeing how when we are in that space, we tend to be governed by fear. So the question arises again. What would a life be like if there was no fear? If you knew you couldn't fail? If there was no fear of loss, of something being taken because there's this fundamental recognition that nothing can ever be missing 
So I'm reminded of this uh, this question, you know. If you knew you weren't going to fail, what would you do? How would you live? And this, furthermore, this idea that we tend to find ourselves bound in this um, interesting egoic feedback loop uh, between love and fear at, at different poles. And what I would say is that fear is a very natural state, okay? Very natural. Um, and you might even argue that it's helpful. So my question to you is, if you would say, well, fear is helpful, and we get to go a little interactive here, how might fear be helpful? I'm asking. When you're in real danger. When you're in real danger, yeah. So can we all agree that fear can be helpful when it comes to safety? Oh my goodness, there is a semi coming at me. Or uh, today, uh, daughter number two, one and a half years old, decided to jump into the pool when daddy was nowhere near her. Okay, now you might say, Okay, what idiot father has a daughter near the pool? Well, I was actually, it, I turned my back for 10, maybe five seconds, and she was right behind me. It's one of those crazy things. She's all stripped down naked, you know, dad, 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 and I didn't hear, and all of a sudden, splash, and it's like, what? And I'm turning into Superman, you know, and scoop her out, and she, of course, thought this is the funniest thing in the world. Hopefully, uh, I have learned my lesson. She will be strapped to my body until I actually get in the water from now on because she's done this before. Um, absolutely fearless, okay? To her, the experience of being in the water is just this, oh, man, you know? And to me, the experience of being in the water with her is one of utter and complete attentive awareness. So when I've got the dog in there and I've got, you know, daughter number one in there and I've got, you know, wife calling to me from inside the house, you know, it, the Zen practice really gets useful. Um, point I'm trying to make here is this. <clears throat> Fear is a natural, natural state, a natural outcropping of the human experience arises uh, very naturally in safety Safety, safety issues. This is good. Okay? On the other hand, a lot of our fear, indeed, I would propose, most, if not nearly all of our fear, is not about safety. It's about mental constructs, stories that we've written about potential disasters that could potentially occur. And so we want to prepare against them Okay, And in so doing, what we can run into is kind of this fight or flight that is really helpful when it comes to safety. But for prolonged periods of time, the cortisol levels in our bodies that start to go with fight or flight where we're, you know, we're amped and so forth, they actually end up destroying us from the in, inside out. Many of you may know this, and if any of you are neuroscientists, you can confirm this. Um, do we have any neuroscientists in the crowd? 
Oh, cool, then I can lie. Oh, one. Okay, damn. <laughs> but cortisol, you know, it just wears us out. It kills us slowly, okay? Um, everything from, you know, organ, you know, diminished uh, organ use to collagen and the skin, everything, okay? So if we can live in a space that diminishes that fear, we diminish, you know, at the physical gross realm at least, we diminish the, the levels of cortisol in our body, we're actually doing healthy stuff, okay? We're actually doing healthy stuff. Now, getting there becomes a trick. We can do it externally through drugs. Many of us actually self-medicate, you know? That third, fourth, or fifth drink on a nightly basis, you know? The, I'm feeling tense, I'm feeling not so good about things, I think I'll go shopping. The losing ourselves in an escapist way in music, in art, in meditation. If we are using anything to escape the fundamental reality of what is, then what are we doing? We're actually doing our best to decrease our cortisol levels and everything, decrease our fear, but we're doing it in a way that ends up being perpetually temporary, perpetually not enough. We tend to swing. Okay? Here again, this is fairly natural. What I'm about to describe to you is not natural. What we find is meditative work, real authentic meditative work, spiritual practices, and by the way, there was a thing on the front page of the Contra Costa Times day before yesterday, anybody see it? They're talking about how uh, individuals, not only with PTSD, but with social anxiety, anxiety disorders on all sorts of different levels, actually are finding that uh, meditation radically alters not only brain chemistry, but brain function, and here's the real kicker, brain structure. that they're sitting in the middle of their fear, that they're sitting in the middle of their joy, their love, their indifference, their happiness, their sadness, everything else, and they're sitting right in the middle of it and not flinching. And that this work, practiced continually, Actually, I was just describing this. I use this metaphor all the time. But it's, uh, it's where we essentially get a spiritual workout at the level of brain. Where we go beyond the brain, beyond the mind, and begin to explore very, very deeply what it means to sit right in the middle of this experience. So, how is it that we can then become more expansive? How is it that instead of being bound by fear and letting fear inspire a series of emotional responses, a series of behaviors, how can we actually go to a much more expansive place? I'm going to call it love, but I want to be careful about the definition. How can we go to that place of love even in the midst of our hell? So let me tell you what fear looks like. I want to make sure I really qualify very carefully this idea of love because the kind of love I'm talking about 
is most likely, um, it's, maybe many of you are familiar with it, but we, we can look at love on two levels. I sometimes describe it as small love and big love. And small love is a love that has fear's edge throughout it. Okay? It's egoically driven. Egoically driven love, and I, I know I'm going to get questions on this. Egoically driven love is romantic. Egoically driven love is passion to the nth degree. Egoically driven love is I give so I can get. Egoically driven or small love is I am in this because that person makes me feel a certain way. This is fine. This is natural. But it's got to constantly get refueled. It constantly needs incredible levels of maintenance. Okay? The kind of love that I'm talking, there's nothing wrong with it. Okay? The problem with it is, if, if we want to look at it this way, if we want to look at it as being problematic, is that it can become an addiction like anything else. And if we find ourselves no longer getting our needs met in that type of relationship, it's no longer, we're no longer getting enough, okay, we tend to go away, okay? It tends to have a shelf life that unless it's continually nourished, okay, the drug wears off, you need more, you're not getting more, you go somewhere else thinking you're going to get it somewhere else. And usually you do, Okay? Ego loves this one. That's a love that's governed by fear. That's a small love. Big love, on the other hand, goes way past that dance between fear and small love. Big love actually is big enough to hold that dance within it. Big love is something that is utterly expansive. And it does not predicate its existence on anything else. Now, in between big love and fear is a ton of stuff. And I'm not going to be teasing that out uh, in this, this particular talk. Okay? We may play with this some more uh, in the weeks ahead. But this idea of you know, this big love, this comprehensive openness, I wanted to just kind of describe, see if I can paint this picture maybe a little bit more clearly, looking at love and then fear, big love if you want, big love and fear, and seeing if you can begin to discern the difference in that experience you've had within. Within your own experience, have you had this fear sense? Have you had this sense or at least brushed up against big love? What do they look like? Well, big love is going to be actually fearless. Fear is going to be loveless. Okay? Fear is going to be clingy, but it's not going to be filled and imbued with love. For those of us that have experienced love at a really deep level, that connection that we feel has no fear affiliated with it whatsoever until the mind starts jumping in and says, what if this love won't last? What if I lose this child, this relationship? This portfolio, this car, this job. Is this natural? 
to have this fear? Yeah, it's natural. The move to big love is not natural, okay, on the one hand. On the other hand, it's the most natural thing we could ever do. We're born into that space and we die into that space. In between, we tend to lose sight of it. So, big love is fearless. Fear is loveless. We could look at love as being about union. And we could look at fear as being about fragmentation. In fragmentation, we find ourselves alienated. We find ourselves atomized. We find ourselves separate. Okay? In big love, there is no separation. Any of us who have ever felt utterly unified with another being or with an experience, you have recognized, at least touched the face of this big love. Okay? Another way of looking at love is it is connected. Fear is disconnected. We can look at love as undefended. And we look at fear as being perpetually defensive. One of the characteristics along these lines when we look at big love and being undefended, if you've ever met somebody who is truly undefended in the way they are moving in the world, you are looking at someone who has what we call presence. You ever walked into a room that somebody can command in silence? You ever found that kind of that vibe from somebody where you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What is it? It's presence. And that presence is they're, they're not defending anything. On the other hand, when we look at somebody who is deeply defended, we look at some pretty interesting behaviors. Okay? Some of them can be highly entertaining. Some of them, not so much. A defended person tends to be, as I've said, somebody who is fearful. Fearful people that are uh, feeling fearful, especially in social situations, tend to go towards extremes. Okay? Um, they tend to be escapist. I spoke a minute ago about ways, strategies that the human organism tends to run towards escape. In other words, rather than being in the middle of where they are, rather than facing without flinching the stress that they're feeling, which is future mind, rather than watching the mind and go, huh, wow, the minute they go into that, huh, wow space, stress diminishes. But instead of going there, they get locked into the stress. And their way out of it is to run away, which actually only exacerbates the intensity of the stress. Our running from the stress increases the stress. Our running from the fear not only perpetuates, but turns the fear into something that oftentimes can be paralyzing. Our ability to watch the fear to witness the run, to witness this stuff, actually gives us a direct path right into the open, utterly undefended space of presence, of big love. I think sometimes we can look at love as a dance. <laughs> we can look at love as a dance, and we can look at fear as a competition. 
Now, you can fuse these two things together in the form of dancing with the stars. Uh, uh, in spiritual terms, we can find people who can get very competitive over their spiritual uh, work. Okay? You can find this in sanghas and so forth. Uh, one of the funniest things I have ever seen in terms of spirituality in community is the competition and backstabbing that can arise over someone getting um, recognized by their teacher with, for instance, the uh, uh, offer to teach before somebody else who's been there longer. It becomes, it's just, it's hilarious. No matter how seasoned you become as a meditator, it doesn't mean that ego dies. Actually, you better hope ego doesn't die. Dead egos tend to result in psychosis. Okay? Egos are good. They help us get through the world. Okay? But when they control the way we get through the world, then that becomes problematic. So love shows up as dance. It's just the right resistance. When resistance is needed, the right pull. When the pull is needed, so the dance becomes a beautiful expression of the universe. Competition, someone wins, someone loses. Love opens us to a spacious ability to witness, to observe. Love is about observation. Love is about, huh, is about, wow. Whereas fear is about comparison. Comparison can't occur without a lot of I versus you. Me and mine versus you and yours. Us versus them. It's that versus, it's that, it's that war stance that can occur. With this in mind, love is peace. Fear cannot help but result in some type of war. And the war can be either subtle or it can be overt. And we can either direct it at someone or misdirect it at something else. But it tends to be outwardly, fo outwardly focused. Bullets are used. Bullets, slings and arrows of your own outrageous fortune are thrown. Okay? Love is about non-judgment. Fear centers itself around judgment. About compartmentalization, categorization, putting it into a box. Love, on the other hand, takes the top off the box. Love is about freedom. Fear is about prison, entrapment, enslavement, bondage. Love, especially big, big love, is always, already, utterly, and completely fulfilled. It's already fine. Always has been. And then fear is about how much I lack or how I am too much. I'm sure most of us have had that experience when you just feel like I'm not enough or I'm too much. Just like fear and small love, okay? 
kind of bouncing back and forth in that echo chamber, the same thing can happen with our sense of who and what we are. I'm not good enough. I'm broken. Something's wrong with me. Big love recognizes that there's nothing to heal because you're just fine. You're doing just fine. You are locked in that feedback loop because you are afraid. You're afraid you might fail. And in order to bolster and support that story of failure, you create an entire series of scripts about how you're no longer any good and never were. What happens if we're able to let that go? If we're able to really, really watch ourselves as we go into that space, perhaps habitually, perhaps you know, we're not even thinking about it, if we can actually begin to become very, very aware of that, guess what? Once again, we're getting on that escalator that's going straight to big love. All right? Similarly, we can look at uh, fear as being about I, self. And when we start actually looking at love, the deepest kind of love, we start recognizing that there's no self at all. I'm guessing just about every single person has experienced the idea, the concept you may have in relationship to no self. I've heard it repeatedly talked about in childbirth. When women go through childbirth, they have this experience where it's like, okay, they're no longer there. Except that whole ouch part, which I think means you definitely are the superior sex. There's no way I could pass a child. No way, period. <laughs> Having watched it twice, I, there are no words. Guys oftentimes have talked about it, especially uh, athletes. Um, have, have uh, I mean, women too, but I, I, guys tend to equate it to the sport equivalent of the zone. when they are midway through the third lap of the mile and they no longer feel their legs, they no longer feel the burn in their lungs, their heart is just beating, their body is just running, and they are there with it. Or just towards the end of the second overtime in a soccer match, whatever it happens to be. Oh yeah, like when there's no thing there. Yeah, that hyper state of consciousness, as Joseph Campbell calls it, avails this no-self. You also experience no-self the minute you go into dreamless sleep each night, where the mind and the body literally take a break. You're no longer even dreaming. You're just there. And when we can bring that into our conscious life, we suddenly have a whole new set of tools with which we can build something new, something more expansive, something paradoxically that's utterly weightless and invisible and that we don't need. What is it that big love builds? Big love builds a life that is no longer bound by the traditional notions of fear. We're no longer trapped by our minds. We're no longer trapped by our bodies or the limitations of either. 
In fact, what we're doing is we're bringing the limitless nature of who we've always been and integrating it into this highly limited body and mind. And what's the result of that? An awakened life. And this begins to like show up the minute we can become really, really clear about the fear experience. When we become really, really focused on fear and what it is that we fear, and we can begin to watch it day in, day out, we can begin to study this fear, we'll find that it no longer can hook us like it used to. The familiarity itself helps us disidentify from our fear patterns. And in doing so, in disidentifying with our fear, what's left? Non-fear. What's another way of describing non-fear? Love. for Q&A if anybody wants to throw a loving question out there. Is it loving? Um, I don't know, but we'll see. All right, yes. Um, I've often wondered if I'm like addicted to fear. Mm-hmm. And what, what that's about. Yeah. And, you know, if that's even possible. Actually, it's probable. Most of us are addicted to fear. And usually that addiction to fear is what leads us onto our cushion. Something's not right. Even when everything's taken care of, you'll, you'll find fear, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you worry, oh yeah, worry. The most useless of all emotions. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, we tend to fear, just to unpack it a little bit. We've done, you guys may be familiar with this, the way way this works, but fear is always going to be a story that the mind or ego uh, or small self, any one of those three, I tend to use those three interchangeably, scripts. It writes. It writes a story, okay, about some event that has not happened yet. And as a result, it pulls our entire experience into the future, taking us out of the present which is the only reality there is. It's our only home. It's the only place we can call home. So we're ripped out of home to go to some foreign land that doesn't even exist. Okay? But what does it do? It keeps us out of home. It keeps us out of the now. And as long as we are kept out of the now, who or what gets to stay in charge? You got it. The ego. The now, or present moment, means death to the ego. So it's going to work as hard as hell to keep you out of that spacious opening that's always there. (laughs) Now, if it's not fear or worry, it might also be something else from our past. Want to take a stab at that, what that might be? If fear is always about the future... What's always about our past? Mm 
That's the little interpretive dance I'm giving here. Pain. Oh, but, but my child, my child, you know what I went through? No, it's not that you didn't. It might have been horrible, okay? But as long as we're clinging to that, we are living a life that is ripped out of the now and in the midst of pain, okay? So being hooked is similar, is like equals addict, like... Yes. Okay. Yeah, and guess what stillness does? It straightens out those hooks. You can pull them out without tearing flesh, metaphorically. They'll heal. Actually, there was nothing to stick into to begin with. And you start to realize this. And as you realize this, an awakening kisses you. Got to be willing to kiss back. Part of the deal. Can't go four-wheeling. You know when you're like, when you're starting to kiss somebody and they, whoa, 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 whoa. No, nobody, just, I'm the only one that's experienced, okay. <laughs> I remember I was like, I was like 16 years old, and I'll tell you, the hardest thing in the world is asking somebody out. Anybody ever ask somebody out, and this is, oh, just me. Okay, so, again, too much information for the sangha, Mike. Uh, so I asked this girl out, and she said no. And I, I just, you know, I, I was so bad at that whole thing. And so I asked her out and she said no. And then she called back and then said, actually, yeah, I, I, do, have some, I do have some free time. And I'm like, oh, yeah, cool. And then, uh, then we went out. And, um, you know, the scariest thing in the world is to kind of go in for that kiss. And I went in for that kiss and she did the whole four-wheeling thing. And I remember thinking, okay, all right, rejection. And I went through this whole, this whole thing of not good enough, you know, I was too, uh, I was probably pushing too hard, I was too much, too little, too much, you know. And that story then filtered into my dating life for at least three or four more weeks. <laughs> and then I got over it. But, you know, that idea of the pain of the rejection and the, I mean, right? And it's in that presence that the kiss actually happens. That's when it becomes magical. Okay? Not only in real life, but also in relationship to uh, awakening. You bet. Yeah. The <laughs> gates. Good. Good. Tell me more about that escalator. The escalator. It was, earlier there was an escalator. The escalator from fear. It takes you out of this fear land into this. Wie sagt man escalator auf Deutsch? Rolltreppe. Rolltreppe? Rolltreppe. Rolltreppe. Wir haben eine Rolltreppe von fear. Wie sagt man fear? Angst. Angst. Zwischen Angst und große Liebe. Liebe. Okay. So this song is now German official. Yes, this song. We, we are a bilingual song. A little bit of German here. Okay. And the reason, the, or the way this, this works, Ralph, is we go, <laughs> when we can observe fear, there's a, an automatic distance that we actually create from the fear. A new subject is born. Fear becomes the object. So if you can look, for instance, right now, everybody do this, right now, I want you to think of something that you're afraid of. 
along with everybody else in this room? What is something that you know, might elicit some fear within? Your ability to look at that right now, identify it. The identify, that which identifies the fear is bigger than the fear. It's a deeper subject than the fear that has just become an object. Does everybody, everybody see that? Everybody hear that? Okay? That new subject, all right, is the escalator. It care, it, that action right there of observing, of watching, actually carries us into this deeper space that actually is able to subsume and and hold the smaller aspects of selfhood, which always center themselves around fear in some capacity, pain in some capacity, or fear of more pain, you know, out of the present moment. But that big love is always present moment. That observing works a whole lot better when there's no fear. Really? <laughs> yeah, so, I, I, I think... Um, I think it's, it's tremendously difficult. During fear? Yeah. Yeah. Um, let that be a cool point of practice for you then. One of the things that intense fear can do, intense pain can do, is it can, it can stop us. It can paralyze us, right? And in that paralyzation, okay, what do we have left? We start actually, we are forced into the present moment. One of the great things about extended retreats Uh, which I really encourage all of you guys to, you know, jump into. We, we fortunately live in a community in an area where there are all sorts of retreats that last longer than, you know, a day or two or three. These longer retreats invariably, invariably point out to each of us excruciating difficulty and pain. It might be emotional, it might be physical, and you might be thinking, why the hell would I do that? And the reason why you would do that is so that you get an opportunity to shift perspectives in a major way, that you can get on that escalator, so to speak. You can begin to watch your fear that's paralyzing you on the cushion. Watch your pain. It forces the present moment. And then guess what happens to the fear and the pain? They start to crumble of their own weight. And it's not that they're no longer there. It's that your relationship to them has changed because of what in you is bigger that has begun to take over. So the only, only words of encouragement I could give you is when you find yourself in fear, find that fear. Explore that, study that fear in the midst of it. And what you're doing is you're now expanding into love. And your ability to disidentify with that fear begins to take, it, it, it unfolds of its own. The hooks straighten. Okay? The wounds we realized they were never there. It's good to see you, by the way. It's good to be here. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Diana. So it is um, not possible to reverse it. It does not reverse itself. You cannot become that child that you were fearless. Your fearless is something you observe, so you have, you have no attachment with it. But you cannot have that thing that you used to have, I used to have 20 years ago. I don't have that anymore. Is it possible to go back there again? I think so. I think it, it, it's changed. I mean, my fears now are different than they were 20 years ago, but fear itself certainly exists. What I would say is this. The more our practice has matured over time, 
the more we sit on our cushion, I do think there's a correlative link here, the more hours we are on our cushion, the less our habitual patterns and our psychological inertia, the, the, less, the less those patterns can carry, the less power they have. Do I get afraid? Sure, it happened this afternoon, you know, but it didn't, didn't stick with me like it would have at some point in time. I think that's probably the, the major thing. you're not thinking about it anymore? No, because you're present with the thought, and then the thought ceases. And so does your attachment to it, because you're not clinging to it. <clears throat> so I would say, as a, as a corollary to that, I would say that one of the things that's really fascinating is that, that the more we sit, the more awareness we actually begin to meet up with. The more we expose ourselves to the teacher, the teaching, and the group, the more that we actually have this really interesting expanse that unfolds. That expanse, I have never seen it smush back down. Okay? I've seen it take on some pretty funky forms, but the, the consciousness goes in one direction especially as we begin to sit still more and more regularly. It's not a state. Happiness is a state. Happiness will show up and it'll diminish. It'll show up and diminish. Awareness tends to go in this one direction. We only become more aware. May you all become more aware. Thank you so much for coming tonight. I really appreciate it.